Today's show is brought to you by Laser Away. Adulthood Made Easy listeners can save up to 75% on laser services at Laser Away. Go to laserawaycom AME now to schedule your free consultation. Something that kind of wakes them up. Whatever it is, it completely changes the way that you're currently seeing your life, seeing your current situation. For me, that book was The Defining Decade. I read it about a year ago, a few months after moving to New York and starting a new job. It was something I saw on a list that was a book every graduate had to read, and I figured, why not? Why not find out how to make this decade the defining one in my life? And little did I know that this book, written by Dr. Meg Jay, would completely change the way I looked at my career, my relationships, and even my brain. Then that book got stolen when my purse got stolen, and I was more upset about losing that book than I was about losing my wallet or my keys or my ID because I really wanted to know how it ended. Everyone came to my rescue and bought me new copies, but... Needless to say, I've been really wanting to have Dr. J on this show to talk to all of you listeners about the defining decade and why 30 is not the new 20. Let me tell you about a little bit about Dr. J. She's a clinical psychologist, and she, like I said, is the author of The Defining Decade. This book has sold more than 200,000 copies and inspired one of the most watched TED Talks to date, Why 30 is Not the New 20, with nearly 6 million views in the first year alone. Now, if you want to know why this book stopped me in my tracks, let me read you a quote that I think will stop you in your tracks, too. 80% of life's most defining moments take place by about age 35. Two-thirds of lifetime wage growth happen during the first 10 years of a career. More than half of Americans are married or are dating or living with their future partner by age 30. Personality can change more during our 20s than at any other decade in life. Female fertility peaks at 28. The brain caps off its last major growth spurt. When it comes to adult development, 30 is not the new 20. Even if you do nothing, not making choices is a choice all the same. Don't be defined by what you didn't know or didn't do. So don't freak out. Dr. J is here with us today to talk us a little bit through why 30 is not the new 20 and how we can all make the most of our 20s. So let's introduce her now. Hi, Dr. J. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. As I told her off mic, I've been wanting to talk to her on this show. I think it's the perfect audience. I think everyone here is muddling through first careers, new relationships, new cities, and and feeling like the, the cross between these are supposed to be the best years of our lives, and we're supposed to just be able to do whatever we want and be silly millennials, and also feeling like, why am I not under all the 30 under 30 lists, and why am I not getting promoted? <laughs> and, and, and you get kind of paralyzed in the middle of those two of that dichotomy, which I'm Absolutely. sure you know you've seen as well. Yes, and I want to say thank you for such a gracious and, and just really humbling introduction. I, I feel like we should just stop now. I've got nowhere to go but down. But <laughs> you know, the whole reason that I wrote 
the defining decade or got up on a stage and gave a TED talk. You know, I'm a therapist. I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted uh, to get people thinking, not necessarily about the one way to do their life, but what way they wanted to do their life or what way they wanted to start their life. And so it's, it's great to hear that that happened, at least for you. And I, like I said, I kind of want to talk through a couple of the main points you make in your book, but then I reached out to my friends, all of whom have read and enjoyed your book and they have some questions for you. So we'll get to those. We'll get to those a little bit later, but I wanted to start with, you know, you think about the current stereotypes of millennials. They're flaky. They, you know, they don't know how to be adults. They are too immersed in Facebook and social media. They're lazy. They're entitled. They're all these different things. And your book really did a great job of not saying all of those things about this 20 something generation. So what do you think about all of that current millennial stereotyping and and where it comes from and, and what it does to this generation and how we behave? Right. You know, I so appreciate you starting there because it's, it's so interesting um, as the writer of the defining decade that people who haven't read it, they assume that's what it's about. Oh, is this about how 20-somethings are so narcissistic now? Is this about mm-hmm. how you know everybody just wants to live with their parents and be lazy? And it's so interesting because that really wasn't where I was coming from at all. First of all, I didn't want to talk about millennials. I wanted to talk to millennials. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you talk to people by insulting them. Um, I also don't think those things are true. That That's sort of what I wanted to problematize or, you know, the most current word for that, I guess, would be disrupt to say those are stereotypes that make for great sound bites and blog posts and sitcoms and and whatever. But that's not really my experience behind closed doors with 20-somethings, that their lives that that I'm really taking their lives a lot more seriously than that. Absolutely. And that is part of your book is you, you tie in all of these real stories from clients that you've worked with. And something that comes up again and again is the way that 20 somethings feel about their jobs. And I was really encouraged by your discussion of what it means to gain capital uh, at work. And, and I would be curious if you could talk a little bit about what it means to gain capital at work and why that's so important for getting to where you need to go in your career. Yeah, that you know, identity capital is not my term, but it's a the term from through sociology. James Cody is a sociologist in Canada. That's it's his term, but I felt like every twenty-something should know this term, and most of them aren't sociology majors. So, um, actually, it's the first chapter in the book after the introduction because I felt like it was so important. If somebody only hung with me for about. 30 pages, I at least wanted them to get that if they were going to pitch the book at that point. Mm-hmm. But what identity capital is about, it's really a modern version or a modern reaction to sort of the old term from Eric Erickson, you know, like from the 50s or the 60s was the identity crisis. And this idea that you go to college, and you have this sort of crisis of who am I going to be? What am I going to do? And you're going to, and you resolve that crisis and then you become something. And that might have happened in a somewhat orderly fashion back in the Mm -hmm. 50s. Um, It certainly doesn't happen that way now. And that I think if people go into their 20s imagining, I'm just going to go into this big 10-year-long crisis, and at the end there'll be an answer, they're going to be very disappointed. So identity capital, to me, is a much more useful way of thinking about what am I doing out here with my career, that you're not having to decide once and for all, who am I going to be, what am I going to do? If you just think of it as, Go out there, 
pick something that gives you some identity capital. So if you think about that from, you know, kind of economics of it, of that's a good investment of my time that gives me a return on my effort that I'm going to go into work every day for six months or a year or three years. And I want to have something at the end that will enable me to get the next piece of identity capital and just to go one piece of identity capital at a, the time, at a time that building a career is like building your own personal assets. And if you are looking at a job, thinking about taking it and there's no capital there, you'd have to really do a good job of convincing me why it's worth investing your your time in there. And there's a lot of different kinds of identity capital, but to think about what are the kinds that, that I need, what are the skills or the assets that I want to collect that I want to use, you know, that I'm going to invest my time in. And why that why I found that so encouraging is because I think sometimes, especially like we've said, uh, the class of 2016 has just graduated. The first big decision you're faced with is what are you, you know, the big question is, what are you going to do now? What, what next? And so that's a really daunting question. And I think to think about it in terms of, am I going into something where I'm going to learn and do things and, and grow a little bit instead of like, what's the title, you know, is this, you know, and getting, paralyzed by the idea of like the first job is what you have to do the rest of your life. I think that's where even yes. so my friends and I get totally freaked out of the idea of like, is this where I am the next 25 years? Like, is this, right. is this my job for life? Um, uh, one day you might wish, but no, you know, it's uh, rarely. And you know, that's sort of the old identity crisis model. This, and the, you know, if you hear about a crisis, it's like, Oh, that sounds so stressful. You don't have to make this, you know, huge fork in the road decision. And I, I just not like that with, with modern careers anymore. You're probably going to have many, many jobs, probably a handful before you're 30. So to think of each one as, you know, is this a good investment of my time? And it doesn't have to be the last job you ever have, but will you be able to get the next one even better and, you know, just kind of move your way closer to where you want to be. But just think about it one good piece of identity capital at a time. If you're doing something that doesn't have any capital, I think you have to really question why and how long you might want to have that last. And something else, another quote I loved was you said 20 somethings who don't feel anxious and incompetent at work are usually overconfident or underemployed, (laughs) which I liked because I think there's another strange thing that happens in this decade where you go to your first job and it's not an internship. So you're not coddled by a, you know, an intern supervisor and you kind of have to put in a little more work and, and you have this feeling of always feeling like you're doing something wrong or not doing something well and not doing enough. And you have a a story in there about, I believe it's getting 10,000 hours before you can really feel, is that what it is? 10,000 or more? Um, Can you talk a little bit about the 10,000 hour rule and, and kind of how it plays into that feeling of, I'm failing, <laughs> failing at everything. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's um, some research by Anders Ericsson that's pretty well known in the social science world of that, you know, people don't instant, people aren't instantly good at things. Even people who have a natural inclination or a flair or even sort of, you know, prodigy-like abilities, they still work really hard at one thing before they're good at it. So, Anders Ericsson looked at a whole variety of people who were very good at their professions, from violinists to dart players to surgeons, I mean, just the whole range. And what he saw was that for all of them, it took about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. 
sort of deliberate engagement to get at a level where they felt like, you know, I'm competent, I'm competent, I'm, you know, I'm expert. And that, of course, is till you take on the next thing. And then there you go, needing your 10,000 hours all over again. But, you know, I think that's a relief to realize, okay, 10,000 hours, a 40-hour work week, that's five years. And that it's, it's okay when you start a job to feel like, eek, you know, I'm only on my first 1,000 or 2,000 hours. No one, empirically speaking, would expect me to be an expert at this yet. But where do we, at the same time, we feel like we are expected to be experts. You know, we feel like we are supposed to walk into a job and know exactly what's going on. And maybe I'm generalizing, but I do sense from my friends and I that like, if you get put on a project and you don't know what you're doing, you're like, well, I sh- clearly I should know this. And I just don't. I mean, where does right. that insecurity come from? The job, the chapter you're talking about, it was, is about anxiety at work was originally not in the book. And I I had written, you know, kind of the first draft of the book, sent it into my publisher at 12, and they smartly had a 20-something there who was a publicity assistant read the book and give me feedback, which was really smart. And she said, you know, I love the book, but there's this one thing about it that you're acting like once everybody gets a job, everything's going to be fine, when really... I don't find the work world all that easy. And as soon as she said that, I thought, what what am I thinking? I probably had five clients that day who were just melting down with anxiety about their bosses and about their jobs. And and somehow that was just this blind spot that I didn't realize needed to go in the book. It's not just about how to get a job. Then it's about how to keep a job or how to survive your job. And, um, you know, I do think, you know, by the time you, if you graduate from college or, you know, you make it to adulthood, you've spent many years getting to the top of the heap. And so it's an unwelcome surprise to go into the work world and to be at the very bottom of what is now a really big heap. You know, and, and if you've gone to college, you've spent, you know, 15 years with adults who are there to, to teach you and mentor you and develop you. Um, And then you get to work and, you know, those people aren't educators. I mean, if they wanted to be educators, they'd be college professors, you know, not whatever it is they are. And so your bosses, they may mean well or they may not mean well, but they're, they're not really used to teaching people and bringing people along. And so sometimes it can be a little bit jarring what it's like to interact with a boss who doesn't really know, you know, kind of how to proceed in service of your development. And that's something that you just kind of have to painfully take and translate every day and figure out how to make your job a growing experience in a positive way. And what's your best advice for doing that? Like for finding that confidence and, and find, you know, and knowing when it's time to move on also from a job. I mean, that's such a great question and, you know, always an individual experience, but I think the one thing, that I have heard again and again and seen again and again that the real turning point, I think, for 20-somethings in jobs when they become from more stressful to less stressful is realizing that it's not personal, that no one's mad at you, or even if they are mad at you, they'll forget about it in two hours or two days because they have a million other things going on, that this isn't personal about you, against you, you know, no one is thinking less of you. I mean, it's just, it's business and that work is happening and sometimes you mess up and people are going to tell you so and that you just keep going. And I think, you know, that there's this sense that if I'm anxious at my job, 
something's wrong. I've done the wrong thing. I had a client who was just such, just an awesome, awesome client a few years ago. And she was brand new in uh, like news broadcasting. She wanted to be a reporter. I mean, talk about stressful, you know, that she'd have to get up in front of the camera and she's got the microphone and the wind is blowing and having to talk off the cuff. And she was so stressed that often the question, the conversation between us was, was she barking up the wrong tree? And he, mostly me, you know, mirroring back what she was saying, she helped us conclude that, you know, this is normal, that if you're going to do something new and really put yourself out there, I mean, that wasn't the safest job she could have chosen, um, that there's going to be stress and anxiety. And it doesn't mean you're in the wrong job. It may mean that you just don't have the confidence yet. You're, you're you know, closer to 1,000 hours than 10,000 hours. And, you know, one of my friends who I was talking to about this interview did ask me if you've noticed she was curious if you've noticed higher rates of anxiety and depression in this generation and and if that is somehow related to the you know changing expectations of young adults and changing workplace environments and things like that yeah um that yes I, um i feel that i have i mean i i'm and i feel that there's research out there um to back me up on this but i have been working with 20 somethings almost exclusively for you know, since before the year 2000, let's put it that way. And so um, what's interesting, I'm a Gen Xer and Gen Xers were definitely known as sort of these, you know, kind of like apathetic, contrary slackers. Not that I would know anything about that personally, of course, but (laughs) that was our rap. And, and I think that, you know, the big Gen X book was Prozac Nation, you know, which is about depression. Um, But for millennials, what I see more in my office, I mean, of course, depression is one of the most common sort of brain disorders out there. And so I, I see a lot of that. But what I hear and see more with millennials than with Gen Xers is anxiety. And I do think that that I have watched that change in the years that I've been working with 20-somethings. I've watched the main focus move from I'm depressed to I'm anxious. And I think that has a lot to do with technology, not that I'm against it, but that millennials have, are just bombarded by so much more information, especially about what else they could be doing, what other people are doing, how their life might look better. You know, everybody's talked about by now, you know, what, when I wrote the book four years ago, people were only beginning to talk about, you know, sort of the, 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 my life should look better on Facebook, like the, the stress that comes from comparing yourself to other people all day, every day. Like, we didn't really have a way to do that. You could compare yourself to your five best friends, but you didn't see everybody you ever went to high school with on a daily basis and what, so they were, what they're doing. It's, so I know. Lucky. I really it is, It's horrible. <laughs> it's really horrible. Well, I mean, that's that's something I wanted to ask you about because, right, when you wrote this book, it came out in 2012. Not to say that Facebook wasn't around, but every year the prevalence of social media is just, it just explodes year after year. And then there's Snapchat and then there's Instagram and then there's Facebook Live and then there's Twitter and then there's all these types of things. And one of the things you talk about a lot in your book is that 20-somethings kind of get paralyzed by too many choices. When you feel like you can go in a bunch of different directions, it kind of means you won't act at all. And I wonder how social media plays into that, like not only choices for what job to take or who to date or whatnot, but also even like you feel like 
choices of what you should be doing this weekend and who you should be doing it with to seem the best, to ha- seem your best social media self and, and what you would have wanted to explore there had this been the, the current state when you wrote the book in 2012. Right. Well, you know, it, it was, and it was, it's just more now. And I, I think what's great about the internet and social media, I mean, what, I mean, it has, it's kind of going on the same trajectory now as television, you know, when television was first a thing, which was before I was born when it was first a thing. But, um, you know, everybody was like, this is brilliant. We'll just park our kids in front of this for like 15 hours a day. What could go wrong? And then, you know, later they realized that's not such a, you know, there are other things to do. And, you know, as children develop besides stare at a screen. Um, and I think similarly with the internet and social media, originally people thought this is, you know, unmitigated greatness and that, you know, like with most technological advances, you realize everything has upsides and downsides. Everything is mixed. And so, you know, when I wrote the book in 2012, I mean, that one of the early chapters is my life should look better on Facebook because I could already see that people were very paralyzed by these upward social comparisons of, you know, what the reality of my life doesn't look as good as this curated life of these other people that I'm seeing. So that's, you've really, your, your frontal lobe has really got to work hard to see that for what it is. And it also makes people confused about what's, or they forget, you know, what's true about them. You know, Bob's doing this, Sue's doing that, Sophie's doing whatever. And that we have to really step back and say, well, wait a minute, what do I know about what I wanted to do or what's a fit for me? And just because somebody else is doing something doesn't mean that's something that would make me happy or that that's something that I need to be doing. But that takes a lot of, um, you know, frontal lobe work. It takes a lot of self-control to walk those messages back. And you, you said frontal lobe twice. So I just want to make sure for our listeners who aren't well-versed in the brain, what is the frontal lobe responsible for and, and how is it developing in our 20s? Because you do talk a lot about the brain in the book and, and development there. Yeah, um, I mean, this is really actually a wonderful you know, bit of science to know about yourself. So your, your frontal lobe or your prefrontal cortex is the, the most forward part of your brain. It's right behind your forehead. Um, and it's the last part of your brain to, to fully develop. And it's still developing and wiring itself up well into your 20s. People thought people used to think brain development ended by the time we were five or six. Now we know it is going strong well into your 20s. So the, the bad news about that is, is that you don't have maybe all of sort of the, you know, kind of maturation or uh, perspective that you might have in 10 years. The good news of that is that your brain is still, you know, wiring itself up and that you have control over how this how this happens, that the way that you conduct yourself every day, you know, is actually wiring your brain in, in one way versus another way. So um, your frontal lobe, which is still developing, um, is able to talk back to the more emotional parts of your brain, like your amygdala, which is kind of fires when it feels uncertain or anxious or so mine is like firing all the time. All mine the time. is like well, working over. Mine is in overdrive consistently. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it, that's the, that is the way it feels to be in your 20s. And a lot of people think of the amygdala. It's like the brain smoke detector that it, it goes off in response to danger, which is true. It also goes off in response to uncertainty. And most 20-somethings live with the most overwhelming, staggering amount of uncertainty that, you know, you just really wouldn't wish on anybody. And that's 
kind of the reality now being in your 20s. So your frontal lobe has to really work to kind of talk yourself down from all that uncertainty that it's not an emergency, that it may not feel good, but this is a part of what it means to be in your 20s in the modern era. And there's a lot of opportunity there. All that uncertainty, you know, is also about, I do have choices. And a lot of those, you know, a lot of that is positive. And speaking of uncertainty, we have to talk about dating because you want to talk about uncertainty at this point. I think (laughs) there's, there's every, yeah, every question I got from friends or every conversation that I have with friends ends up revolving around there because I think it's like, you know, you can get a job, like, you know, worst case scenario, there's a we're hiring sign at your local bookstore. Like, so you know that at least you can apply there if you didn't get your dream, whatever, but you never know if someone is going to swipe right on you. Like you have no control over the other person's thumbs. So someone asked me, um, she was like, I want to know, I know how to be intentional in my career, but how do you define intentional dating in the world of apps like Tinder and hinge? It feels really passive waiting to see if someone else swipes, right? Right. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you're, bringing that up and sharing that all your friends said, okay, really what I wanted to talk about is dating because it's, it's interesting because we're, you know, millennials are very 21st century. And like I said, I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, at at Berkeley, I got a degree in clinical psych and in gender studies. So I'm as feminist as they come. And it's interesting that people come into therapy and, yeah, they want to talk about that they're stressed at work or about their bosses or their dissertation. But more often than not, they want to talk about relationships. And that doesn't mean that you're a sellout or you're not a feminist, that, you know, you've got love on your mind, um, that that's just natural. That's part of figuring out what your life's going to be about, what the certainty is going to be of who am I going to be with, what am I going to be doing, where am I going to live. But the the uncertainty with dating is just like your friend said you it's not like you feel like well if my job doesn't go right I could just go back to grad school buy myself a couple of years and go off in another direction that dating feels a lot more amorphous than that so um, but it's actually not that different that I think if you think about being intentional with work everything you and I have just talked about that you can bring that same intentionality to dating that Nine times out of 10, the clients that I have that are in relationships that are not making them happy or not going anywhere, when they do want to be going somewhere, they, they know it. So they're, they're almost like, you know, jobs without identity capital, for lack of a better term. I mean, they know that they're sort of empty relationships and they're, they personally want something more. And so I think you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? How long might I be doing this? Um, and sometimes make the really brave choice, which is to choose uncertainty over a not-so-great certainty. Did you know that the average woman will spend over $10,000 on razors and 72 days shaving in her lifetime? Are you tired of spending all this time and money on what is also ranked as the most hated beauty ritual? We are too. Good thing our friends at Laser Way have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, Laser Way offers the most advanced cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic, permanent results in just a few treatments. 
Laser waste treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, care-free, and ready for that last-minute date or beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laseraway.com slash A-M-E. That's laseraway.com slash A-M-E. Do you feel like all of these apps that have popped up and different ways that you can meet someone, like, do you think that plays into what you discussed about having too many choices and kind of just adding to the uncertainty, like, is, is our apps just doing it wrong? You know, I, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, sort of like I said with Facebook, I think everything has upsides and downsides. And, you know, I've seen a lot of upsides with, you know, internet dating. I mean, that was a thing that people were barely willing to do, you know, five years ago, maybe. And now I have seen people use it to be more intentional, to think about, okay, well, first of all, which site am I going to go on? Because in some cities, some sites are looking for one thing and other sites are really more looking for other things. And you kind of get the, get the scoop on what's up with the different sites. But to think about what am I really looking for? What site am I going to join? Not just because of what's free or what's easy, but, you know, what I'm really looking for. How am I going to describe myself? How am I going to say what I want? So I think it's giving people the opportunity to be more intentional Yet, it's also given people the opportunity to be, you know, more distracted and to be more impulsive. So it really depends on how you personally engage with it. And everyone also asked me to talk a little bit with you about dating down and how you know if you're dating down and, you know, what what really makes a real deal breaker and, and why is it important to be aware of something like dating down? Yeah, I mean, dating down is, you know, just sort of the shortcut for, you know, when we're, you know, we're just kind of going with whoever wants us. We're not really thinking about what is it I want or need. And that a lot of 20-somethings, and, and I have to say a lot of 20-something women do that. Like they're so excited that someone swiped on them or wants them, you know, it feels good to be special. It feels good to be wanted that you almost don't take the time thing like, well, do I want that person or do I want that person for two years or just for two days and to really think about it. But, you know, I have almost never had a client who didn't know they were dating down. They just didn't want to admit it or act on it, you know, in terms of like, <laughs> right. you know, breaking it off and getting out there and saying, I'm willing to be uncertain there's a saying that people prefer the certainty of misery over the misery of uncertainty. And then, you know, a lot of people would rather sort of be with something. They know it's not great, but they're afraid to get back out there and be uncertain. But I have almost never said to someone, I think you're dating down and they're stunned. Usually they're relieved (laughs) or they start crying and say, Oh, it's so true. Um, So there's a great way of thinking about it. A client told me once that someone had told her, and you can think about this with your relationship. You know, if you keep living your life exactly like it is, so dating the same person, you know, for five years, where will you be? Do you like where you'll be? And if your gut goes, ugh, then, you know, you have to ask yourself, when are you going to stop doing that? You know, when is enough enough? I know. And there's some kind of weird pride, I feel like, with my generation in feeling like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to marry this person and I, we can move in together and not really know. And it can... 
I don't need to think of, you know, I'm just kind of doing what I want to do, which I guess is the whole point of your book is everything can't just be all the time. I'm just having fun or this is fine for now at a certain point for now has to, has to kind of expand a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, not because I have a personal agenda about it, but I think because eventually, you know, you might want something that goes beyond the now. And and what I fear happens sometimes with people is that they're just like, well, it's fine for now. It's fine for now. It's fine for now. And then they feel the pressure to make a commitment or to have a child or whatever. And that now person becomes that forever person when maybe that's not really what you intended. And I also think, you know, it feels something like antiquated to admit that I want something for more than two weeks or two days or two nights. But, you know, millennials may be, you know, modern and 21st century, but they're still human and, you know, humans want connection, humans want stability, humans want relationships, and that it's okay to say, I'm actually looking for something here, um, that I'm, I'm taking my relationships and my sex life as seriously as I'm taking my job. There's nothing wrong or anti-feminist about saying that. I think I'm going to send that sentence to all media outlets in America, which is millennials are human. And I'm going to send that to everyone because sometimes <laughs> we're, we're treated as like weird, lazy aliens, but I really like that. Yes. And before I let you go, uh, I'm curious for people who are like me, who are 24, you know, we don't have our whole twenties ahead of us, but we still have most of it. What can we do today, this weekend in the next week to make sure to kind of take stock of this decade of our life and make sure that we are owning it, claiming our adulthood, making sure we're gathering that capital. That's a great question. And this is applicable if you're 24, you're 29, you're 39, I'm in my 40s, and I'm still asking myself this question all the time. And it really goes back to what I said a minute ago of if you keep living your life exactly as it is right now, where will you be in five years? If you feel great about that answer, keep doing what you're doing. If somewhere in your gut you go, oh, whatever that is, you just kind of grind about, that needs to change. And it really needs to change tomorrow. I'm not sure what it is you'd be waiting for um, in terms of making that change. That's really good advice. Thank you so much, Dr. J. Like I said to everyone, they should pick up a copy of The Defining Decade, and they should also watch your TED Talk, Why 30 is Not the New 20. Both are such awesome resources uh, that will just inspire them to take advantage of their 20s and and really make sure that they're they're making the most of this decade. So thank you so much for your time today. I loved talking to you. We could have talked probably for hours. We could have. This will have to do. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Raise your hand if you're in your 20s. I really want to see some 20-somethings here. Okay. Y'all, it's awesome. Um, If you work with 20-somethings, you love a 20-something, you're losing sleep over 20-somethings, I want to see. Okay. Awesome. 20-somethings really matter. So I specialize in 20-somethings because I believe that every single one of those 50 million 20-somethings deserves to know what psychologists, sociologists, neurologists, and fertility specialists already know, that claiming your 20s is one of the simplest yet most transformative things you can do for work, for love, for your happiness, maybe even for the world. 
That was Meg J, author of The Defining Decade, which you can get wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Samzabel and I'll add them to my list. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to review and subscribe in iTunes. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einenkel, and our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and remind all graduates from the class of 2016 to grab a copy of the book, The Real Simple Guide to Real Life, which you can get wherever books are sold. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.